0: Welcome, everybody, and you are listening to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. And not only do I reveal how the world really works, but uh, I also remind you that the more that things change the more we need to depend upon those things that never change. And one of the things that never changes is that science is a wonderful means of understanding what things do and why they do it. But science is an inexorably a appalling thing for predicting how people behave and why they do. That's a really important thing to remember. And the development of quasi-scientific areas like psychiatry and psychology have come up with all kinds of very interesting things, but they don't fundamentally change the basic truth which is that science is excellent at telling us all about how things behave and why they behave that way, but appalling at telling us why humans behave in certain ways and what those ways are. Now, when a large number of human beings coalesce and combine and start behaving in unison with one another— Uh, What you have is what could be called a mob, and now all of a sudden, the behavior of that new creature is very much predictable. Very interesting. Every single individual person, each and every one of us, unique and individualistic, but put us together in a group and allow the group to acquire certain mob characteristics And if you've ever been in a crowd like that, then you get a little bit of a sense of what it's like. Um, If you've ever been in the the street of a revolution, uh, whether it is in Asia or whether it's in the Arab world, but if, if you are somebody who has been amidst, then you felt it, it's palpable, then you know you are in the midst of an animal with its with its own strange way uh the the surging and seething masses of humanity surrounding you uh, become terrifying if you haven't yet completely joined in another place you get it to a much less frightening degree of course can be at a sports event a football match and you're in the crowd and there's 50,000 people there and the excitement, because of the way the scoring has gone, the excitement is through the roof and the the cheering. And you will find yourself doing things you would never do if you were home with your family or together with a few friends after work. You wouldn't behave in those ways. But the impact of the crowd does cause us to undergo certain changes and in the same way that a, uh, uh, an organism is made up of many cells, so it is that this organism called a mob is made up of many cells, namely you and me and all of us in the mob, and then its behavior becomes fairly predictable because it's no longer a human being. It is a new kind of creature. It is an animal. And uh, it's important to understand that, obviously, because, as I touched on last week, uh, part of what is happening not only in the United States of America, but worldwide with respect to the coronavirus, is, in fact, um, mob behavior. And you find this already now in the United States, many people who um, are not endangering anybody else but are simply not doing what their neighbors or friends think they should be doing are being shamed uh, on social media in uh, in stores and elsewhere because the mob has totally and completely bought into everything the worst possible nightmares regarding the scenario so um, again with a proviso that yes i i know of course i am not in the epidemiological field i don't know much about epidemics i know even less about pandemics um and i uh, i'm not a doctor but i am applying not education and only a little intelligence and a lot of wisdom i think so let's first of all Um, Just try and put things into perspective, shall we? In the 2017 to 2018 winter flu season, um, do you know how many flu deaths there were in the United States? Uh, Well, um, let's look at the January to March period, over 15,000, that's right, 15,000 deaths, um, and possibly more, uh, because the total for the year was 61,000, most of them concentrated in the winter months. But at any rate, January through March, at least 15,000 flu deaths. Um, how about January through March, how many car deaths, how many car accident related deaths, road fatalities, right? Because here we are, um, and I'm recording this um, in the second half of the month of March of the uh, <clears throat> of 2020. And um, it's, it's worth remembering that the first patient who showed up in America with coronavirus was a Chinese gentleman just back from Wuhan, China, uh, 55 years old. And he showed up in hospital in Seattle on January the 19th. So let's say the the uh, coronavirus crisis in the United States has been going January, February, March, three months. Uh, road deaths during that period, um, over 8,000 in the United States. 8,000. So you've got 15,000 at least flu deaths, 8,000 car deaths. How many suicide deaths January through March? About 10,000. That's right, about 40,000 a year. So... Uh, About 10,000. So 15,000 flu deaths, 8,000 car accident deaths, uh, 10,000 suicides. Um, What is the number of American deaths from coronavirus? The answer is 206, 206, 206. Uh, The main states are still Washington, New York, California, and Georgia. Um, those four states between them account for about 80% of those 206 deaths that America has had in January, February, March. Um, so, uh, So now, I'm only talking about deaths because the new increase in reporting, and I warned you about this last week, you're going to see a big increase in rates of reporting, and that's because they're rolling out the tests now, uh, which the uh, CDC had previously and uh, unjustifiably and irresponsibly kept to themselves. But as more testing is done, uh, more cases will be reported. But again, the overwhelming majority of them are non-critical about 5% tend to be critical. Now, um, also what is worthwhile talking about is that uh, there are various analyses of a correlation between this coronavirus and weather. Uh, By the way, COVID-19, the actual name of the disease, um, is given because of the words coronavirus, C-O-V-I, and then the word D for disease, C-O-V-I-D, coronavirus disease, 19, the year in which it first showed up, 2019. So COVID-19, um, there are reports that seem to uh, correlate with the seasonal characteristics of flu that show that uh, warmer temperatures and higher humidity weaken the transmissibility significantly. So, uh, and that happens with the the regular flu as well. It's early yet, and I am not even sure that the studies I've looked at are fully peer-reviewed, but... um, There is at least grounds for some optimism there. Now, uh, much of the research on warmer weather and higher levels of humidity, which are now coming to the Northern Hemisphere, uh, will tend to reduce the transmission of COVID-19. A lot of that research is from China. So why would I trust it? Uh, Well, first of all, let's just take a a bit of a closer look at it. Um, There are several studies and uh, uh, they have all examined the effect of weather on the spread of this virus. And uh, the Chinese researchers looked at 100 different Chinese cities that have each had more than 40 cases of COVID-19 <clears throat> in during this first quarter of 2020. And, uh, and apparently, the methodology of the studies um, has been highly regarded by uh, American um, scholars as well. Um, the, the, the They have generally commended the studies accounting for gross domestic product per capita, uh, which normalizes the difference in healthcare facilities and the normalizations for population density. Uh, the papers all show that the direct impacts of air temperature and humidity levels can be plainly seen in the severity of the outbreaks during the earlier stages of the virus spread. To me, that is very good news. <clears throat> now, why am I giving credence to a Chinese study? Well, I'll tell you why. The, the general um, approach taken by the mob is that this has come from a seafood market in wuhang china uh, the problem is that the first patient in the state of washington in mid-january never set foot in that market at all number one number two it's been associated with bats along with earlier flu strains we've seen in this country and uh, they don't sell bats in that particular uh, seafood market so what else is a possibility um, well, I'll tell you. Let me first of all just go back to a New York Times, uh, and the, uh, the paper I'm holding in my hand is uh, December the 20th, 2017, uh, so a little over two years ago, okay? Uh, on page 12 of the main section, you'll see a headline story, a federal ban on making lethal viruses is lifted. To just make sure that 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 is clear, what it's now saying is that in December 2017, the New York Times reports that the government that had previously prohibited laboratories working on enhancing the fatality, the lethal aspect of viruses, um, were stopped from working. But then in December 2017, Uh, they are allowed to resume work on lethal viruses. By the way, the picture accompanying the article uh, says a colorized electron micrograph of the coronavirus that causes Middle East Respiratory Syndrome or MERS. Federal officials ended a moratorium imposed on funding research that alters viruses like this to become more lethal. And... um, and so now, work can proceed, says the head of the National NIH, National Institute of Health, and they are working on finding more lethal. Now, why on earth would they want to do that? Well, I will explain uh, in a moment. But first of all, just a few more things from this article. Um in 2014, federal funding was halted, October 2014, to make three viruses more dangerous, flu, MERS, and SARS. Um, they've also been trying to work on an Ebola virus that could be transmittable through the air. Now, back in 2011, three years earlier, an outcry arose when labs in Wisconsin and Holland revealed that they were trying to mutate the lethal h5n1 bird flu in ways that would let it jump easily between people that's right um the cdc the center for disease control a very politicized uh, government organization um in 2014 they accidentally exposed lab workers to anthrax and they shipped a deadly virus to a lab that had asked for a benign strain for a sample. Uh, that same year, the National Institute of Health found vials of smallpox in a freezer that had been forgotten for about 50 years. What I took away from this New York Times story is that uh, there are obvious flaws in the American bio labs there have been accidents, there have been a number of near accidents, there have been some very careless incidents, both at the uh, CDC and the NIH, and, um, and yet the restrictions on this kind of research were, were lifted. For what purpose? Well, because there is weapons capability in these things, and uh, and although they they say well there's also as you do research into making these things more lethal we're also discovering things that are useful for health but that's not the prime purpose the prime purpose is that these labs um are in contract to the department of defense i mean that's pretty straightforward and whether it should be that way or not i'm not discussing at the moment All I'm saying is that if America has uh, labs whose purpose is to try and produce more virulent strains of dangerous diseases, uh, what do you think the chances are that China has such a place? And guess what? You'd be exactly right. Turns out that there is in all of China there is only one lab that does this kind of research, and guess where it's located? In the city of Wuhan. That's right. China's only Lefour microbiology lab that can handle deadly viruses is um, part of the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Now, Okay, why am I telling you all of this? Because I think that China is probably the source of the most useful information on uh, on some of these problems, the coronavirus. Um, and it's really funny to hear some of the social justice warriors and the woke pundits pretending that the biggest problem facing America at the moment is that the president is calling this the China virus. Like, oh, this racism. I mean, can you believe it? This has to stop. This is almost on a parallel, I think, is it not, with news reports that just came out and again being jumped on by the, the whole left side of the media Um, let me quote, though medical facilities may soon become overtaxed for everyone, the coronavirus pandemic has shed light on how transgender people's care can be treated as non-essential. And I emphasize non-essential because the news report I'm reading from has the words non-essential in quotation marks. For transgender and gender non-conforming people, gender-affirming surgeries are life-altering procedures which for many can greatly reduce gender dysphoria and improve quality of life. But in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, trans communities are being flooded with reports of postponed and canceled surgeries, leading to enormous stress and disappointment, on top of a global health crisis. And this underscores a common experience among trans people seeking medical care, et cetera, et cetera, that nobody takes their needs seriously. And that is uh, more of the same. Uh, Suffice it, I think, to say, though, that uh, something is going to need to be done about the uh, attitude towards China. I think the president is really the first leader ever to begin saying, stop this kid gloves treatment of china uh, the the real problem in the coming years is china it has been china for a long time and in spite of the fact that the left's fixation on putin and russia uh, no frankly me personally i'm absolutely fine with president vladimir putin changing the russian constitution to allow him to remain head of russia till 2036 you know what it's been stable things are quiet it's under control and uh, and that's just fine. I, As you know, I've spoken about this for four years already. I don't see Russia as the big problem. In many ways, I see Russia as really a rather natural ally of the United States at the present time. But China is really a different story. Uh, the Chinese handling of the early days of their outbreak in Wuhan... Uh, was completely irresponsible, and and nobody's saying anything. Uh, what is more, a number of the previous uh, bad flu epidemics that have come have also come out of China. In general, there appears to be uh, a, an unhelpful approach. China flagrantly lied to the World Health Organization in November or December on this. And the WHO, being an arm of the United Nations, not surprisingly, just bought into that and accepted it. And uh, the internationalization of, of coronavirus could absolutely have been stopped had China been forthright from the outset. Why were they not forthright from the outset? Probably because this virus did not originate from the market, although even that is um, is kind of interesting. As you know, ordinarily, um, and this is less so in the United States these days, but animals used to be used extensively in lab testing for absolutely everything. And the, the rules which I think were probably followed in the United States and most of the Western world are that when the animal dies uh, at the end of the test or during the test, whenever it is, uh, the animal is um, cremated, incinerated, right The carcass is burnt. Um, in China, there have been a number of cases where they have caught workers at labs selling the animals, the dead animals on the meat markets. <laughs> so uh, what's there to say? I mean, my goodness, so so primitive is the security at their labs, that some of the workers actually managed to get carcasses out and sold on the meat markets. And again, uh, I've obtained um, actual reports of these cases that transpired. It's just extraordinary. But uh, quite apart from that, to me personally, it would seem that the the simplest explanation— using the principle of occam's razor first of all try the simplest explanation the simplest explanation for the emergence of coronavirus in wuhan china is not the market but is is the wuhan virological institute something went wrong there and this did escape just the the emergency meeting that was held very quickly in Beijing, where uh, Xi Jinping spoke about the need to contain the coronavirus and set up a system to prevent similar epidemics in the future. I'm just reading some of those statements. Um, And he actually used phrases like, a national system to control biosecurity risks must be put in place to protect the people's health because lab safety is a national security issue. Um, Lab safety, what did that have to do with us? well i think it is quite possible that it had a great deal to do with that um the chinese ministry of science and technology during this period released a directive called quote, instructions on strengthening biosecurity management in microbiology labs that handle advanced viruses like the novel coronavirus um to me that sounds as if they're basically saying hello, this thing we're all suffering from. And when these statements were made, it hadn't yet spread out of the country. So um, uh, I also saw a report that a Major General Chen Wei, who is the communist army, the Chinese communist army, top expert on biowarfare, was sent to Wuhan to help contain the outbreak at the end of January the top biological warfare guy in the Chinese army is involved? Apparently, yes. So um, I do suspect that the coronavirus originated not by some accident and not by the food market, but actually by an accident at the bio labs. In other words, if since uh, December 2017 the United States of America has got biolabs working on producing more virulent strains of various diseases and making them more easily transmissible between people, then why on earth wouldn't China have the same thing to a far greater extent? And of course they do. And and so I wouldn't be at all surprised that Chinese know-how on this May be way ahead of ours. Maybe way ahead of everybody's, uh, if they've been working on weaponizing it. And coronavirus is one of the things that that got out. Um, yeah, uh, they probably know a whole lot about it. Coupled with that is something which I'm sure you all know already, uh, from the same source as I do, which is that uh, a very high proportion of our medications are manufactured in China. So uh, there's a lot of know-how there, and that is why if Chinese studies at Chinese universities are claiming a strong correlation between warmer weather and higher uh, humidity and a drop in transmissibility, then I am very much inclined to take that seriously And I think, as I said, I feel uh, very confident. I feel good about this, knowing that, yes, uh, I think we probably are going to see a decline in this fairly soon, which is just as well, because the fact is that we cannot carry on on this level of uh, disruption for very much longer. So please disregard uh, things you hear the mayor of New York made a foolish statement, the governor of California made a foolish statement, and thousands of other politicians made equally foolish statements. Uh, having, you know, this is going to be for many, many months, going to be 18 months long, etc. No, it won't. Because uh, the, the simple reality is, and, and this is the main point I wanted to discuss in this podcast, the main point is that economic stress creates as much death as do um, the viruses okay so um, the University of Chicago has a very interesting study and I think I can put my hand on it fairly quickly well if I can't I'll be able to find it but I did have it in front of me and that is a study showing that um, uh, the Death rate increase among the unemployed is very serious. Unemployment causes an increase in death rate. That's a serious thing. Uh, This whole crisis is causing a drop in charitable contributions to organizations that take care of the homeless and medical organizations. Uh, the, uh, uh, The rise in suicides has been noted. When economic stress happens... Uh, it is very, very unhealthy. How many people will die of that? Well, I think a whole lot more than the 206 souls we've lost so far to coronavirus. Here's the problem. The problem is that some deaths are visible immediately, and others are concealed by chains of circumstance and passage of time. And so when you have uh, a coronavirus leaking out of a lab or spreading in a population, then it's very easy for politicians to um, seek credit for immediate response to this unacceptable emergency. But um, it takes a lot more wisdom and a lot more statesmanship to say, wait a second, on this hand, I've got deaths due to coronavirus. On this hand, I've got deaths that are going to be the inevitable result of the economic decline. For one thing, you know, people say, oh, we need more ventilators. We need more masks. Look, do you know what it takes to manufacture something as simple as a pencil? To manufacture a ventilator, these things cost about ten to $50,000 each. Uh, and that's not profiteering. That's because they each contain thousands of components, each one of which is in itself a high-tech product which needs to be manufactured. And so if you were dealing with a localized emergency, you'd buy the stuff elsewhere. But since the whole world has developed a mob mentality on this, uh um, It's going to become impossible to get those ventilators, as well as a whole lot of other medical equipment, including things as relatively simple as beds. And so it's all very well to say, oh, we're saving lives by keeping people at home. We're actually costing lives by keeping people at home. Um, A far more sane approach that I don't think the animal called the mob would have tolerated is, hey quarantine vulnerable people let everybody else continue and get to work go on you know back to work but uh it's not at all certain that the animal i'm calling the mob would tolerate that and i i just i just don't know that that it would since um this you know anybody can make this calculation. Uh, I'm not doing anything unusual here when I figure out that this cannot continue for more than another couple of weeks. Really can't. Um, the economic cost, not, you know, people say, well, it's just money. We're willing to spend any amount of money to save a life. That's not true. We're not. Right? It's manifestly not true. And uh, and there is a, a tough, cold-hearted calculation, not on an individual level on an individual level right I'm, I'm i'll spend everything i've got to save a family member's life no question about it but as a society would we say let's spend all of the tax revenue in america in order to save 30 lives or 100 lives or 200 lives the answer is no nobody nobody in 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 any position of responsibility would recommend doing that and so uh, within a short space of time, expect to see authorities realizing that this is unacceptable. It's just, it's untenable. It can't work. It is going to result in greater loss of life over a period of time. Admittedly, it's not as dramatic. It's not as immediate, but it is just as real and it will be um, just as significant. So expect to see Uh, that realization and at the same time a drop in the transmission and growth rate in the disease um, a drop in the death rate and generally speaking a gradual begin to return to some level of normality much sooner than everyone is telling you just remember the mob is doing the thinking at the moment. The mob is reacting just like a wild animal is reacting, not thoughtfully, not with any deliberation, and not with any eye on long-term good. That is simply not happening at all. So yeah, every death is a tragedy to the family members, to the loved ones. But on a national level, we can't live as if every death is a national tragedy. It isn't let's let's be honest about that uh, in the first quarter of this year january through march about 703,375 americans are going to die or have died between january beginning of january end of march those 3 months uh, nearly 3 quarters of a million of americans die um illness uh suicide car accidents and old age right that's that's a reality uh it's not a national calamity it's a reality and in that context 206 uh deaths 206 deaths from uh corona um is a a reality it's a t- statistic and um there is no reason to believe that it is going to uh, continue climbing meteorically and uh, and becoming this huge calamity that's going to overwhelm the hospitals, uh, just remember that the animal has a tendency towards that kind of thinking. The animal that is the mob has a tendency in that direction. Uh, this is very much the kind of uh, thinking you would have during... Um the student um, drama of the nineteen sixties nineteen sixty eight through nineteen seventy and again, from people who lived through that time, I have heard how intoxicating it was, and that is exactly the right word where again you you are so overwhelmed with the sense of being part of an unstoppable juggernaut of. A historic event. You really are part of this. And that's one of the reasons that bloodshed uh, so often begins to occur in these, in, in these street movements because you've developed an animal. And what's more, once it tastes blood, uh, the frenzy gets intensified. So it is a dangerous thing. There's no question about it. But also to note, it's more of a young uh, persons. Uh, young people are much more susceptible to becoming part of the animal than older people are. Uh, people who've lived a little bit of life and uh, and have a little bit more life experience, not quite so easy to stampede. Uh, also, I think it tends, the the danger of becoming part of the mob, I think tends to impact those on the left a little bit more because uh, again they are more likely to be impacted by the government must do something syndrome or the uh, the idea that what experts say is automatically so there have been the most inane and moronic uh, pronouncements by people like New York's mayor de Blasio and California's governor Newsom and many 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 other politicians And uh, the important thing is that people with a little bit of thoughtfulness dismiss them. They don't know any more than you do. And it's just a convenient way of getting in front of a television camera. So remember, science is great uh, for wanting to know how things will act and why they act in certain ways. Um, you let me get hold of some basic information, the uh, size of a balloon, the stretchability of the the rubber, uh, various pressure considerations, fill the balloon with helium, let it go, and I will be able to tell you the altitude it'll reach before it bursts. Because as the balloon ascends into the atmosphere, the pressure drops. As you know, that's why uh, Passenger airliners are pressurized because the pressure, air pressure at thirty thousand feet, is a lot less than air pressure at sea level, and the balloon feeling that will expand, and at a certain point it'll burst. I can predict it, and I can tell you. Um, Have you ever noticed how the water coming out of your kitchen faucet or your bathroom faucet, it starts out as a fairly wide diameter stream, and then as it falls down, it gets narrower and narrower and if you have enough of a drop it'll eventually become droplets it'll separate i can tell you exactly why that happens right there's a simple scientific explanation each water particle accelerates in its fall by the by the force of gravity and since the each Um, slice of water in the column of falling water is falling a little faster than the one above it that means there's going to be more space between it and the one above it and unless it fills that with water and the only way to do that is to reduce the diameter of the fall so as the length of the fall can be expanded to fill up the space left by the more rapidly falling lower water it's it's beautiful it's elegant it's true it's simple and it, it predicts many, many other things that allows us to know about fluid flow in, in a number of other contexts. Um, take, make, make some model cars. Let me know something about the sloping surface. We put them on, paint them all different colors. Let me measure the friction at the wheel bearings, and let me measure their weight, and I will predict which one will hit the bottom of the ramp first. And there's no question about it. That is what will happen, because science can predict the behavior of things. Now, as soon as you turn that into full-size racing cars and you put drivers behind the wheel, now, although I can measure weight and friction and engine power and weight-to-power, power-to-weight ratios, I cannot predict who's going to win the race. You know why? Because each driver is going to be willing to accept a different level of risk, Every driver has his own level of determination to win the race. Um, I can measure Olympic athletes. I can measure their weight and their muscle mass. And I can measure uh, their their shoes they're wearing. And I can measure all of those things to the point where I know everything about them, including their metabolism. Do I know which one's going to win? No, because the ability to endure pain and to drive your muscles one little bit more that's a spiritual power science is useless when it comes to measuring spiritual impact and uh, that's why i say that even fields that attempt to be quasi scientific psychiatry psychology and economics all of them fail in the basic test of being able to predict and understand human behavior because we are driven far more by our souls than we are by our bodies. So science may know everything it needs to know about our bodies, and science can predict and understand everything about bodies, but nothing at all about souls. And so science predicts people not well at all, things very well, but how about mobs? When it comes to mobs we're back to science because mobs are not people they're they're animals. A mob is one huge multi-legged animal. Multi-headed, multi-armed animal, but it must be seen as one animal. And uh and that is exactly what it is that we're dealing with here. Now, here's the thing. Um I don't think that it's helpful to spend all of today's show speaking about coronavirus. I don't believe so. So what I'm going to do is now let you enjoy a short piece I did on history. Uh, here's what happened. I was going to co-host a cruise in the Mediterranean with Glenn Beck and with David Barton um, and with Bill O'Reilly um in coming up very soon it has of course like everything else been cancelled they had asked me to prepare for the people who uh, uh, who had uh, purchased tickets for the cruise to provide a uh, a little history perspective on certain aspects of israel uh, and these were going to be put on an mp3 player and given to each passenger uh, that, of course, at the moment is not happening, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the first of these, and what I focused on was um, modern Israel, how Israel came about, and more interestingly to me, the role of Christians around the world in the development of what's called Zionism, and which resulted in the founding of the State of Israel in May 1948. But the history of this goes back into the 1900s, excuse me, into the 1800s, into the 19th century. And uh, there were some really remarkable people involved in all of this. So I'm going to give you a little bit of an insight into that. I hope you enjoy this little piece And you'll hear I'm talking to the cruise passengers because I thought that was who was going to be listening to it. But um, I think you'll find it interesting. I certainly hope so. And then when that's done, I'm going to spend five minutes on giving you a biblical approach to dealing with the coronavirus. So I've started off talking about it. I'm going to give you the body of a talk on israel and i'm going to wrap up again with a biblical approach to uh, these days that we are all going through right now and i'm I'm hoping all in all that this will be both an enjoyable an interesting and a useful podcast so let's go over now to uh, the story of israel hello everybody I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin and, and I hope you're having an absolutely wonderful time on this trip. And I want to add a few things that I hope will enhance uh, the travels for you and I'm hoping also that the uh, material I impart to you now uh, is going to be of a nature that you're not yet fully familiar with. I certainly hope so, because otherwise, <laughs> this is a very complicated system to bore you to death. But um, you know, we we all know the the various stories of the early days of the Jewish state, um, the various aliyahs, the various immigration waves. Uh, from the oppressed uh, places in Europe where Jews had suffered for centuries and um, and they came to the land and they built kibbutzim and they turned swampland into productive agricultural areas and they proved that yes Jews could be farmers and um, and they fought off the Arabs, and I mean, everybody knows that in May 1948, literally within minutes of the world's agreement, the formation of the State of Israel, uh, the surrounding Arab armies immediately launched an attack which was uh, expected to wipe out this nation before it had even existed for a week, and uh, as a matter of fact, the rest of the world also thought that, uh, well, nice try, we gave it our best, but the Arabs are not going to go for it, and they are going to now wipe out the station, and the dreams of a Jewish homeland will subside for another thousand years. And yes, there there really were people who thought that. Well, uh, in 1948, the um, tiny group of people making up the state of Israel uh, one they actually won that war of independence. Amazing, uh, and the war of independence was not uh, something that resulted in the Declaration of Independence. Right, unlike in the United States of America, in Israel, the Declaration of Independence from the United Nations and the uh, and David Ben Gurion came about, and that's what launched the war. Uh, that was an intolerable what Jews living in Israel. Said the Arab world out of the question, and uh, so it was. And this so it continued until 1957, and then there was another war, the Sinai War, and so it continued until 1967, when on the holiest day of the Jewish year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when all the soldiers, uh, virtually everyone is in synagogue, uh, the Arabs launched the Yom Kippur War, and So it was what they didn't know was that there was a secret system of summoning everybody in synagogue to their army posts. And what they didn't know was that the Air Force had been practicing for years uh, on how to deliver a preemptive strike. Because without that, um, Arab bombers were going to literally level Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. Um, I was in Israel at the time, I have to tell you and i remember uh graves being dug huge mass graves being dug in parks in jerusalem and tel aviv and we were all very grim about it i was i was a kid i was young at the time but i remember it and there was this grim atmosphere we all know that uh the torah doesn't allow mass graves excepting under these circumstances uh, the uh, everybody understood that the demoralizing effect of unburied dead in the wake of Arab bombing attacks would be so bad that uh, mass graves were preferable with the hope that maybe if things went okay afterwards, they'd be able to go back and correct and, and rebury everybody appropriately. And then uh, came the miracle of the Six-Day War. It was all over and uh, and everybody celebrated, and everybody thought how wonderful, and then came 1973, and another war launched by the Arab armies, and so it goes, until finally it reached the point where many Israelis um, do not say, when will there be peace, they accept that this is the condition, this is how it is, uh, the, the dreams of one day living in peace, uh no not not looking too likely so uh these are the stories with which you are already all familiar i know and uh and so i thought wouldn't it be interesting if we go back a little earlier than 1948 the formation of the state of israel and let's not look uh at the heroism of the jewish arrives and the Jewish Chalutzim, and the the Jewish Kibbutzniks, why don't we look and see about the role of Christians? Yes, that's right. Uh, People tend to think that Zionism began with the first Zionist Congress in a Swiss town called Basel in 1897. In the summer of 1897, uh, they had a three-day gathering, Um, during which delegates who had uh, been informally associated with the dream of a Jewish return to Palestine or to Israel all got together, a few hundred people, um, and uh, they had three days of speeches, like 20 major speeches, and uh, Herzl was elected the president of the World Zionist Organization. Uh, Theodore Herzl. Um, It's important to point out now that he was a secular Jew, okay, and I know for many of you that is a strange thing. I've never yet met an atheist Christian or a secular Christian because to be a Christian means that at some point in your life, as I understand it, you have purposefully and deliberately accepted Christianity with all it entails. Uh, Judaism, however, uh, is to some extent, and I don't want to oversimplify it, but to some extent is predicated on being born to a Jewish mother. Not entirely, but to some extent, which means that you can have and do have Jews who say, I'm not religious, don't believe in God, don't believe in the Torah, but oh, am I a proud and committed Jew? And it sort of makes sense on some slightly bizarro world uh, view but it's certainly somewhat unique to the Jewish people. Anyway, Theodor Herzl had no interest whatsoever in Israel as a biblical fulfillment of a biblical prophecy. As a matter of fact, he was actually willing to seriously consider a British offer to take Uganda instead of Israel. Uh, the British were finding themselves in a bit of a fix, having sort of promised the same piece of real estate to both the arabs and the jews and um and so they came up with this idea of giving Uganda I mean, like as if the uh, Africans in Uganda would have had nothing to say about this um theodore uh theodore um uh Uh, Herzl, actually was willing to go along with that. To him, it didn't matter. He was looking for a political refuge. He was looking for a place where Jews, tormented by uh, extremely oppressive anti-Semitism in Russia, a place they could find and go. Uganda was as good as a place in the Middle East. It didn't much matter. Uh, And it's important to, to understand that as we move along with the story. So uh, the delegates of these three days in 1897 in Switzerland, they formalized the goals of the Zionist movement, a Jewish homeland in in Palestine. They adopted the song Hatikva, the hope, uh, as the anthem of Zionism. And here is where I find the story starting to get very interesting. Uh, There were 10 Christian guests invited to attend the Congress and uh, I'm just going to take a a quick look at two of them. One was a guy called Henry Dunant. Henry Dunant was a a banker from Switzerland. He was a local guy, and he had begun to advocate passionately for an international body uh, to care for wounded soldiers. That's right. Think about it. 1897, right? The Red Cross didn't exist yet, and Henry Dunant, um, he had been a Christian missionary. He was as a banker, but he was deeply religious. And uh, his biblical beliefs um, added fervor to everything he did. He traveled around Europe promoting his idea of the Red Cross and also the Geneva Conventions for Warfare. And uh, he actually pulled it off, the Geneva Conventions, and that's why I think they're in Switzerland, because Henry Dunant was a Swiss guy, and the Red Cross based there as well. And Henry Dunant attended that first Zionist Congress. By the way, he got the very first Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts uh, in 1901, and that might have been the first and last time that anybody worthy actually got the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, he, uh, had begun round about the middle of the century. He had begun, um, pushing and speaking and lecturing and promoting and advocating for the return of Jews to Palestine. And he actually established an organization called, um, the International Society for the Renewal of the Orient. His call for the establishment of a Jewish colony in Palestine, um, led Theodore Herzl into this direction. In other words, Henry Dunant was so influential, so well known, his efforts were so well publicized, that um, he actually stimulated t- t- uh, um, Herzl in his thinking. Um, Herzl was the very first person to use the term Christian Zionist, and Herzl used it with reference to Henry Dunant, the Swiss banker. And um, and he personally invited Dunant to attend that first Zionist Congress. Somebody else who was invited to that first Zionist Congress was another strongly committed Bible-believing Christian called Reverend William Heckler, uh, H-E-C-H-L-E-R. William Heckler uh, was with the British Embassy in Vienna, and he had read um, uh, Theodore Herzl's book called "Judenstaat," the Jewish State. Uh, uh, Herzl was via, was Austrian. He wrote in German, and uh, and in a in a few minutes, I'm going to tell you how. Churchill, excuse me, how Herzl came to write the Jewish state, how he came to write that book. Uh, Once again, it was Christian Zionists in America that launched his concept of the book and the entire political movement. Um, So uh, uh, William Heckler came across Herzl's book, The Jewish State, and he became um, an enormously influential and deeply committed uh, associate, friend, helper, advocate for um, Theodore Herzl, and um, uh, in Herzl's diary, which makes fascinating reading, he records his first meeting with Reverend William Heckler, and uh, and this is what he writes. Hitler declares my movement to be a biblical one, but I proceed only rationally in all points. And there again, we see uh, my observation from a little bit earlier that Herzl had zero religion. He probably didn't know much about the Bible, he cared less, and he was not in any way in any kind of relationship with God. and, and he said, you know, said, look, I, I appreciate Reverend William Heckler, uh, and it's kind of interesting. He thinks my movement is biblical, but of course, I'm just doing this for rational reasons. Um, William Heckler, who, you know, being a, uh, a diplomat in, in Vienna, uh, was an influential guy, and so he introduced Herzl to top people like, by the way, Germany's Kaiser Wilhelm II. And um, and so Heckler walked uh, Herzl into the court of Kaiser Wilhelm II. And as you can imagine, um, this was enormously important. Not because uh, Herzl and Heckler changed Kaiser Wilhelm's mind on anything necessarily. And I don't think history records any response from the Kaiser other than a polite reception. But. What's so important is that for the first time, Jews around the world said, hey, you know what? Um, this guy, Herzl, may be onto something. It's a funny thing, my friends, but uh, we Jews uh, tend to be more impressed with our fellow Jews when people who are not Jewish respect them and value them. It's a funny thing, but uh, that seems to be how it goes. And so, Herzl, who had been pretty much ignored up to that point in the Jewish community, uh, many people thought he was uh, causing trouble, he was starting drawing attention to the Jewish people, looked like he was rabble-rousing, and in general, you know, people's experience with European governments for several centuries already was such that you really did best by lying low and trying not to draw any attention to yourself. So many, many Jews were quite uncomfortable with Herzl's loud proclamation of the need for a Jewish state in Palestine. But once he uh, was known to have had an audience with Kaiser Wilhelm, who, by the way, at that point, uh, was Kaiser Wilhelm was, was viewed fondly. As you know, many, many Jews... Uh, served faithfully and honorably in Kaiser Wilhelm's army in World War One. Uh, this is long before Hitler, and uh, Germans felt very. Excuse me, Jews felt very at home in Germany, and if Germany's Kaiser Wilhelm acknowledged the role of Theodor Herzl, wow! Well, all of a sudden, uh, Herzl became a celebrity within the Jewish community, and that gave enormous headway to the um, to the Zionist movement all of a sudden Herzl gained great legitimacy because up till that point remember he's what we call an assimilated Jew he was completely disconnected from the community from Judaism never showed up in synagogue nothing but all of a sudden the Kaiser acknowledged him wow and so all of a sudden he gains legitimacy um now, I should tell you, there was so much appreciation of what Reverend William Heckler had done for Herzl, that he actually received a pension from the World Zionist Organization uh, from that period, late uh, 1890s, all the way to his death in 1931. And, um, and, and that was, that's beautiful, I think, I feel. Anyway, so what happened then is that um, uh, Herzl at that point, saw his relationship and his alliances with Christians purely as strategic, not spiritual. Okay, and so there again, it's just worthwhile seeing through his eyes, uh, he simply couldn't relate to the fact that Christian support for Zionism um, was rooted in the Bible. It, for him, it, it didn't register. He just couldn't compute that. And so, but he welcomed the alliance with Christians. But he saw it as strategic, not spiritual. Uh, the Christian Zionists, however, uh, people like the two I've spoken about, and there were another eight Christian Zionists at the conference, and many, many, many more uh, behind the scenes. Their perspective on Zionism was entirely based on a reading of the Bible. Um, you know, Zechariah, I mean, full of references to uh, nations of the world joining with Israel. Uh, Isaiah wrote, Thus saith the Lord, I will raise my hand to the nations and lift up my banner to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their bosoms and carry your daughters on their back. Back to the land of Israel, of course, um, and many, many verses like that, which uh, influenced not only obviously generations of Jews but more importantly, Christians saw these verses as um, as as having real meaning right, like every part of the bible and and therefore uh, mandating their need to Get involved in this movement of Jewish Zionism, which, as I'm going to show you, many people think began with the World Zionist Congress in uh, 1897, but I'm going to show you, it goes all the way back to the beginning of the 19th century, and by the way, earlier as well. It could be traced back all the way to even England, uh, among the group of people who later um, moved to the United States in the 17th century, Uh, it it was already evident there. But for the purposes of this discussion, uh, I'm just going to take it back to the early 1800s, the beginning of the 19th century, which in itself, I think, is really news for most people uh, who are not aware that, first of all, uh, Christian Zionism was enormously influential and very much part of the entire story of the return of Jews to Israel in 1948, um, and that it didn't start in 48, it didn't even start in 1897, but it started a very much earlier. So, Uh, let's leave this discussion right here, and we'll pick up in the next one from this point moving onwards. Thanks so much for your participation. Thanks for your friendship, and I can't tell you how much I enjoy the time we spend together. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin with my wife Susan, and uh, back with you soon again. Okay, there you are, and I, I do hope that you enjoyed that, or at least found it interesting and enjoyed it maybe ideally, and um, it made me want to also explain something that I again touched on last week. If you listened to last week's show, you'll remember me pointing out that any force can act for good or bad, all right, and the more powerful the force is potentially for good, That's how powerful it can also be for bad. A a bicycle doesn't take you very far or very fast, but if a bolt falls off a bicycle, the worst that can happen is that uh, you'll skin your knee. A jet airliner can take a lot of people very far, very fast, but the downside is if the bolt falls off that, the results could be calamitous. And so, positive and negative. I've been focusing on the negative aspect of what I call the mob, or what Elias Kennedy called the crowd. Uh, But there is a positive part to it as well, which we have to bear in mind. And um, when an army goes off to war to defend its country, if you think about how uh, the British went off to war in 1914, Uh, how they went off to war again in 1939, and you think about how America uh, roused itself for war after Pearl Harbor in December 1941, Uh, the fact that men can bond together and form these incredibly close relationships with the people with whom they serve and be willing to undertake all levels of danger and peril in order to be part of this crowd. So uh, crowds for good and for bad, obviously. And what we saw a little bit with the emergence of the State of Israel was a little bit of that as well, the crowd for good, where all of a sudden, uh, Jews from many different parts of the world sort of felt themselves once again, reunited with their people, people who hadn't even been involved with a community or or with any formal uh, religious association, nonetheless, suddenly started becoming aroused to join in with this crowd, with this mob that was setting about rebuilding the state of Israel. And so during the early 1900s, Jews flocked from Europe and from other parts uh, to form these communal agricultural settlements called a kibbutz or kibbutzim in the Hebrew plural and uh, they formed the foundation of the defense strategies of the new state they f- it was out of the kibbutzim that the political infrastructure emerged but all of this was again part of the same idea of of unifying for the crowd and um, and so i think that so far we've only seen the mob on the negative driving panic and fear and hysteria in America at least, and other places, about the coronavirus. Um, What we haven't seen mobilized yet is the cure. And I think that that is going to become equally powerful in the opposite direction. I think that's going to be very, very positive. So that was one thing. And the other thing that I reflect on, and here I am uh, letting you into sort of my personal reflections on the topic uh, and so uh, I'm I'm sort of a little hesitant because I don't usually like uh, or feel comfortable being this personal on the show when a whole bunch of us are are together but uh, but I I will say this it's you know, at times like this, I I think to myself, you know, what are we here for? I'm, I'm not going to deal with why is God doing this. It's too early for that calculation. So I'm not doing that. But I, I do say, what does he expect of me? Why, why am I here? And something that is hugely meaningful to me personally and to my family is a step beyond the usual realization of a person's relationship with God. Ordinarily, we are all accustomed to thinking of how much we need God. We sometimes append the words, please God, when we say, you know, I hope we're all going to stay healthy, please God. Uh, So far, we're all healthy, thank God. And so the extent to which we all need God is clear and obvious to, to any thoughtful person. But what I think is every bit as valuable is the recognition that is less obvious, but no less significant, and that is that God needs us, right? When you think about it, that's pretty clear, right? Why did God create the world? And and why was the culmination of this enormously co- complex and vast creation the the end result of it was a man and a woman human beings the only conclusion we can reasonably draw is god needed us he absolutely needed us it's as simple as that so we're fulfilling his need and uh, there are a number of interesting uh scriptural supports for this view which we'll deal with maybe some other time or i'll do on the tv show but um but that's really very much a part of what I think about. Now, why is that relevant? Because I think to myself, what does God need me for? Does he need me just to eat or and drink? No, the, those are things that I need to do in order to retain my existence. But what does God need me for? And the answer is very simple and very clear, very unequivocal. The answer is God needs us to do something, to act with greatness and nobility and magnificence. He needs us to be what he made us for. And in that, in some way that I I obviously don't understand, but in some way, God finds that significant. God finds that meaningful. And so at difficult times, when it is the easiest thing in the world to slide into lowered standards of self-restraint and lowered standards of self-discipline, and um, and to say to oneself, well, these are emergency times, you know. I I am going to drop my usual standards, or these are the are are normal times. God'll understand if I don't do this, or if I do do this, and so on and so forth. But um, the opposite is true. These are exactly the times where God expects us to call upon deep levels, deep reserves of strength in order to help those around us remain confident and to draw on our deep reserves of generosity and our deep reserves of being givers not takers and drawing on our deepest reserves to grasp for the nobility of angels rather than the the baseness of animals and to be everything we were created each that each and every one of us was created to be and once these regulations came into force of quarantining it means that i wasn't going to be interacting with the people i usually interact with and i wasn't going to have the usual opportunities i have for being courteous and the usual opportunities I have for trying to exhibit good manners and to uplift other people's spirits as best I can, and now uh, I'm confined to my close family, um, I, I realize that uh, even more is called of me at a time like this. And, um, and I, for one, am going to uh, continue doing my utmost to deliver on that, uh, the um, the Bible study I do, I'm going to try and do more intensively. The uh, preparation of future resources, and I will let you know now already that I'm working on a resource for uh, the Passover Seder. As many of you know already, certainly in the United States of America, but elsewhere too, um, literally thousands upon thousands and thousands of houses of worship conduct communal seders, both Jewish and Christian. Now, this year, uh, the way things are looking, um, those are not going to be able to take place. Now, seder is meaningful for everybody. That Passover seder is not just a commemoration of something that happened 3,300 years ago. No, the Passover seder is an annual inoculation against stagnation and lethargy in various areas of our life and that annual inoculation of experiencing the Passover Seder keeps us in good shape and I started thinking what about all those folks who were going to go to a Seder at their synagogue or at their church and now they're not going to be able to do that and I thought okay fine. I am going to prepare a resource for conducting your own seder for you and your family. So you don't need to be at a communal one. Provided you are sufficiently well equipped, and that's my job, you can go ahead and conduct a seder that could possibly be the most meaningful one that you've ever had. Maybe, you've, maybe it'll be the first one but uh and so i'm throwing myself into that during these days of uh, limited social connection and uh i hope that i will make available the results of that work within the next few days Um, And again, the best way to find out about that is to be on my website at rabbidaniellappin.com, where you will uh, go to the store and you'll see whatever is up there, what is available. Right now, by the way, because so many of us are stuck at home, not able to attend our usual uh, Bible study sessions, no longer able to do the things we often do, uh, we have dropped the price of uh, pretty much everything on our store site by 15%. Not the really big sets, but everything else is uh, dropped in price so as to make it easier for everybody to to benefit from them and to uh, benefit from these times that uh, we're all experiencing. Okay, so uh, with that said, I hope that everybody stays healthy. Uh, for another week. And bear in mind just one more important point during these difficult times. You know that we try constantly to take the long view. We try to overcome the natural tendency to just live for today. This is really one of the great gifts of the Bible, and Jews and Christians have benefited tangibly from this for years, and that is it helps us see life as a video, not a snapshot. It's not all about today. It's about yesterday. And above all, it's about tomorrow. And so we teach ourselves, we teach our children to take the long view. You know, think about next month. Think about next year. Uh, Live today in a way that'll give you a better adulthood if you're a child. We teach that all the time. I'm going to reverse that because times are abnormal, very abnormal right now at the time I'm recording this. And so uh, the most important thing I want to stress is not live for today. I'm not saying eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. No, far from it. No, everything's going to be fine. What I am saying is don't worry about the long term. Don't worry about politicians who tell you, oh, it's going to be 18 months of this. No, it won't. It won't because it can't. It absolutely can't. And every single politician, every single person in leadership knows this even better than I do. It can't and it won't. So there are going to be changes and there'll be changes for the better. I promise you that. There's no question about it. But um, if you only focus on, oh, I I can't take another week of this at home with the children. I can't take another. Listen, did you get through today? Are you getting through today? pat on your back, well done, and get a good night's sleep, and tomorrow is another day. You deal with it day by day. Don't think about, how am I going to manage? Um, don't think to yourself, what is going to happen? Is my company going to continue paying me for the next six months of this? Don't think like that, because it's not going to have to. All you've got to say to yourself is, hey, did I have enough to eat today? did I pay most of my bills today? Am I going to make it to the end of the month? Great. All right, that's enough for now. That's all you have to think about. And so I know it doesn't come naturally to us because we're all people who are training ourselves to think long term. But for this, this is so abnormal that you have to think short term as I say, not in terms of nothing matters, so therefore, you know, we're not going to last. No, no, not like that. No, on the contrary, that um, each day is its own triumph, and all we've got to do is get through tomorrow. Don't worry about next week. Don't worry about next month. And I assure you, you don't have to worry about six months' time or a year's time. That for sure not. So right now, just all you got to think about is, I got through today. That's fantastic. Get a good night's sleep. You deserve it. And tomorrow is another day you you get back into battle and you do everything that has to be tomorrow, drawing from your deepest reserves everything you've got of generosity and greatness and nobility and magnificence as much as you possibly can and then some. And so until next week, I wish you seven days, of good times health-wise, good times with your family, good times, I can't say with your friends because you're probably not seeing a lot of them, but use technology. I'm doing that. I'm talking to friends over Zoom and Skype. Yeah, it's great. Good times with your finances, and yes, good times with your faith. Take care of yourself, and God bless. I'm Rabbi Daniel Appen.